Father, as we open your word, just pray what, what, what we always hope for on Sunday mornings, that what we don't know you would show us, and what we don't have you would give us, and where we lack you would provide for us, and where we fall short you would forgive us, where we're immature you would grow us. Lord, by your word's power and your spirit in us and your grace to us, would you make us more like your son, in whose name we pray, amen. Verse 1, we get a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And David writes, he puts pen to paper, and he says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He's going through it. I mean, he's really going through it, right? He's in the wilderness, and this is what comes out of his mouth. I'm seeking after you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. And he's not talking about physically, though that's probably true. That's probably what prompts this analogy in the first place, right? Is he's looking around at this barren landscape. And he's like, this isn't just true of my physical reality. It's also true of my spiritual one. So he says, just like I'm sitting in this wilderness, hiding, trying to survive, so also I'm seeking after you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I'm, my soul thirsts for you. There's a, um, this is the language of someone seeking relief. So C.S. Lewis has a book that he wrote called Reflections on the Psalms. And, and in it he remarks that the, um, the desert first teaches men to love water. Desert first teaches men to love water. I was on a mission trip in college. We went to China. We were doing evangelism there. But while we were in China, we were staying in the northwest part of the country. And that's mostly like a desert climate. One of the days, uh, our team that was on the ground there did a fast from water. Now, most of the time, like you do it, you can do a fast from social media. A lot of people do. We know from Lent, like people will give up something for 40 days. Um, and a like the most common fast that we hear about in the Bible is fasting from food, right? But this day we would fast from water, from sunrise to sunset. And our leaders told us, like, don't go to the hospital. You know, drink water before that happens, okay? So, um, so that's a caveat, so you don't think you're crazy. Maybe we were crazy, because, like, the first couple hours of the day, it's okay. And then you start to think about it, and lunch passes, and you don't have anything to drink. And by, like, early afternoon, all you think about is finding liquid, you know. So it's like, and, and we were told, every time you think about water, you should, every time you get thirsty, think about the thirst of this place that you're in, spiritually. So it's like, you want nothing more than to find water to refresh you. And you're in a city that has very few churches, very few churches. Very few Christians. Very few places where people can find living water to satisfy their souls. So every time you thirst for water to drink, pray, pray that living water would flow in this city. And like by the afternoon, that's all I was thinking about. I was like, I'm really thirsty. Okay, help these people, you know, like find churches. Also, I'm really thirsty. You know, it's like, I was dying. Most of the group did not make it actually the whole day. Um, but it was like everything you think about is, is tinged with the fact that you're thirsty, right? Am I going to play basketball with my, with my Chinese friends today? 
that seems like a bad idea. I'm not going to do that, right? You start to make decisions because you're, you're so thirsty, what you lack. And I remember at sunset when I finally had water, it was the greatest tasting water I've ever had in my life. You could have quadruple filtered water in a gold chalice delivered to you by Brad Pitt. And it, did not, it would not taste as good as the water I drank that evening in China. The desert first teaches man to love water. David says, I'm seeking you, God. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I'm dying here, God. I'm here and I need you. These are the words of a person in despair, not a person who has it all together. I would hear, I, I would bristle. I used to bristle at the, the, this statement, and, and maybe you guys have heard it too, but some people would say, like, Christianity is for those who are weak, you know, weak-minded people who need help. And I'd be like, oh, that's, that's rude, you know, first of all. Um, and I would take offense to it. I used to, anyway. But I don't anymore because I think it's, it's true. Christianity is for those who are weak. It's for those who are weak and admit they are weak, you know? For those who find themselves in situations like David and ask for help. David is in a situation of despair and he seeks help. He seeks after God earnestly. It's like you look at your life and you really think about it. You really think about it. And what do you, what do you actually control in your life? Do you actually control whether or not you get cancer? Do you actually control whether or not someone you love passes away? These huge things in our life that we have little to no control over. We are weak. Christianity is for those who are willing to admit it, you know, seek help and find it in Christ. This is why he can say in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are weak and are willing to admit it right? And David here is weak and he's willing to admit it. And this is our reality as humans. So just a few weeks, maybe two months ago, um, maybe two months ago, Kenzie started to have this problem with one of her eyes. Little Kenzie's our four-year-old. She's super cute. You'll see her running around like causing havoc. She's cute, which helps her because she causes a lot of havoc. But um, she started to have a problem with one of her eyes, and it wouldn't be all the time. It would, like, sometimes be more later at night, but Amanda would notice it, and then be like, yeah, it's just not moving the same way all the time. Like, sometimes it can't do what her other eye can do. Like, if she looks down, she can't look up with both eyes. One of them will look up, and the other one will, like, struggle to do so. So we took her to the eye doctor, and the eye doctor's like, it's not a lazy eye. I don't know what it is. So we scheduled a blood test and an MRI. And the blood test is to find out... Um, like if there's some kind of immune disease that could be like eating away at the muscle that controls her eye, okay? The MRI, though, is to take like pictures of her orbital structure on the one hand, but the second piece of the MRI is to see if she has like a tumor on her brain. And it's like, of course, this gets scheduled for the time that I'm in at Challenge Conference and I can't be here. So I'm across the country and Amanda has to take our four-year-old to the doctor to see if she might have a brain tumor, you know? It's like, what do we control in life? And then you, you, 
you find yourself in a wilderness saying, God, I earnestly seek you because you can't do it on your own, right? You need help. So David writes, God, you are my God earnestly. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. The desert teaches man to love water. Sickness teaches us to love health. Despair teaches us to seek help. This is what, this is what David does, and he seeks it in God. And as I wrote this sermon, I, th- I thought, like, when do people become Christians? It's, you know, like, I, I was thinking, like, which of my friends became Christians when their life was just at its pinnacle of, of awesomeness? You know? He's like, man, everything is going so great. I need you, Jesus. Like, be king over my life. It's like, no, but I know dozens of my friends who became Christians when they were at their lowest. When they had just lost something. When life was harder than it had been. It's like, you, you ask someone, and you should do this. Ask someone about how they became a Christian. Like, what was your journey to faith? And I think what you'll find is, like, almost all of them will talk... Not about like, like prancing to Jesus, you know, skipping across the field of lilies to Jesus, but like limping to the cross, crawling under its shadow. They seek God, their soul thirsts, their flesh faints like in the wilderness, and then something crazy happens, which is that God shows up. They seek and they find. They knock and the door is opened. This is the despair that leads us to seek for help, and then God shows up and he helps us, and this is the next uh, seven verses of our passage today, verses two through eight. David says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips, and I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you. In the watch of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wing, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. He says, I'm seeking you, and then I saw you, and this is how awesome it was. And he starts to list all of these things. I saw your your power and your glory and your steadfast love. It's better than life. What I saw satisfied me. I kept thinking about you. I remember you before I went to bed at night, and when I had, you know, when I was on the night watch, I had time, right? My mind could wander. Where did it wander to? It wandered to you and how good you are. You've been my help. You give me joy. You hold me up. You strengthen me. You think about the time that you fall in love with someone, okay? I would guess that many of you have like, at some point, maybe it's been destroyed since, the, since now. Maybe you've destroyed it out of just like shame, but you had a journal where you wrote about all the amazing things about your crush, right? Oh, she's like, I like the way she laughs. I really like how, you know, she, she wears flannel shirts. You know, I don't know what it is. But you, you start to notice things about the person you love, you know. And so it's like Amanda, the first time I met her, my roommate Heath introduced us. And I had just come from an interim basketball game, and she took my basketball and she started dribbling it while we were talking. <laughs> it's like, we have three kids now, you know? But it's like, you, you start to notice these things that like, you know, whatever, they're, they're meeting your love language. Mine is like basketball, so it's weird, but. But I remember how funny she was. I remember how confident she was. I remember, 
I remember the dress that she wore to my friend Neil's wedding. It was white. It had pink flowers on it. And that was the first time I was like, I think, I wanna, I think I'm going to shoot my shot with Amanda, you know? <laughs> so a couple of years later. And I remember, like, I remember, um, this was before we were dating. We were at First Baptist down in Minneapolis. And I remember watching her raise her hands in worship as we were being trained to bring the gospel to China and other places. I think she was getting ready to raise support. But. Love does this. When you love someone, you notice things about them. You can make a list like David does here. You can make a list of the things that you would praise about them. And what's also true is like love matures. So I couldn't love Amanda as much in 2009 when she wore the white dress. As I can love her now, why? Because in 2009, I couldn't love the way she would stay up late talking to our girls at night, giggling, telling stories, you know? I couldn't, I couldn't love the way that she patiently processes big emotions with them. I couldn't love the way that she encourages me when I'm discouraged by work. But it hadn't happened yet. I hadn't seen that side of her. And so our love grows. David's love also grows because he hasn't just seen God save him from a wild animal. He hasn't just seen God save him from Goliath. He hasn't just seen God save him from Saul. His list is growing of the ways that God has rescued David, has provided for David. His love is maturing so that he can sit and remember. He can sit at night and remember, and his mind can wander to these times when God has been his help. And our love grows over time. And the more that our love grows, the more specific it becomes. The more our love grows, the more we can talk about, talk about it, and the more satisfying the experience is. C.S. Lewis, uh, I mentioned him before. He wrote the Narnia series. He's one of my favorite authors, so you're going to get a lot of quotes from him. But he talks about this. He, wrote, he actually wrote a book called, called Reflections on the Psalms. It's worth reading through. But he, he remarks in it that when he, be, when he first became a Christian, he used to not like the fact that God would tell his people to praise him, you know? That God would demand of his people that they would, that they would worship him. Why? Because it seems kind of vain, right? You imagine, you know, we don't do this at Gospel Life, but you maybe have been to a church where it's like, you know, find someone next to you, shake hands, ask, how you know, ask about their day, whatever. But imagine that after church today, you show up at the picnic, and you meet someone you haven't met before at Gospel Life Church, and you're talking to them, and they talk a lot about themselves, you know, and their accomplishments. It's fine. You're like getting to know someone. And then you share something interesting about yourself. And they go, okay, okay, but back to me. You know. You might not want to like sit next to them at the next picnic. You know. You might want to find someone else to like talk to. Right? Because vanity is not, not good. What, what, what happened for, for Lewis is two things. One is that he found that God was worthy of talking about himself. You know, he actually like lived up to the way that he would describe himself in the scriptures. But the second, the second is that praise is like the, the thing that completes joy. So you can enjoy something, and that's good. Like imagine enjoying something is like the entree of the meal. Praise is the dessert. Praise necessarily follows and fulfills joy. So it's like, we experience this to be true all the time. 
David writes, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied. And he goes on, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Well, praise that comes from love is praise that is actually perfecting the enjoyment of that love. It's like necessary for the joy to be complete is to praise something. I, I, I shared on Facebook of maybe last week, I can't remember, that Bluey, this is kids show. But it's really f- for everyone, and it's the best show, maybe of all time. It's, there's new episodes that came out, and Amanda and I are watching them with the girls, and they're like, one more show, one more show. You know, they're like, crazy. But we're like, yeah, okay, one more. You know, because we're like with tears running down our face because it's so beautiful, these seven-minute episodes that just like break us. Okay, anyway, um, I put that online, and, and then people will comment, they've seen it too. I love that too. I saw that too. It's so great. What's your favorite episode, you know? We like to praise the things that we love. It like completes our enjoyment. It makes our enjoyment go further. So then I wanted to test this theory. So a couple days ago, I pretended that I wanted new restaurant recommendations. If you ask for restaurant recommendations on Facebook, man, let me tell you, the comments just pour in. People like to share about things that they love, right? Oh, I love this restaurant. Well, it was like four minutes in. I was just like watching, watching people comment. It was like four minutes in and... One of my friends said, you know, it's not a restaurant, but you should try this mini golf place. I was like, that's not even what I asked for. But she loves it. She loves it. So she wanted to share, right, that joy. Praising something is a natural outflow of our enjoyment of it. So God tells us to praise him, but that's not separated from him first telling us to love him with all of our heart and our soul and our mind. So praise is a, like the, the dessert, the cherry on top of experiencing his steadfast love. Your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Praise flows out of love. So David sees God, he experiences God's love for him, and praise is what comes out of it. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. I wanted to, I was like reading this and I was like, this is, food can't be theoretically good, you know? I could describe to you, or I could take one of these restaurants, I could describe to you what my favorite food is. And I could say, it's got this seasoning on it, it's got this sauce, this is what I really like about it. And you'd be like, oh, that sounds good, that's nice. But that's different than like bringing you to the restaurant and having you actually taste it, you know? Or having a man to actually cook it for you. Her chicken scampi. It's just like... It's like you, you won't be satisfied with my description of food, you know? Not fully. So also, like in the, in the scriptures, it's not enough for us to just think rightly about God but also for us to experience rightly about God. You know, there's a, there's a famous quote, um, there's a famous quote of someone who said, like, there's nothing more important about a person than what he thinks about God. And I think that's probably not entirely true. Because I think in Christianity, in America in particular, you could give people a multiple choice quiz, and you could say, is God rude, pretty nice, perfectly kind. Is God perfectly holy? Nah, he, may, he sins sometimes. Real bad guy. And I think if you had give Christians this quiz, they would do pretty well on it, right? They would get a lot of the answers correct. They would think rightly about God. But then if you looked at their lives, you would wonder, 
Okay, has their thinking about God crossed into their experience of God? Or is there a block between their brain and their heart? This is what I think knowledge is, is when you combine both what right thinking about God is and also like experiencing God's goodness in real ways. David says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. But he's thinking, he's like remembering back on all the times, not that he, not just that he read the scriptures, and he does. We like know David meditates on the Lord's word. It's sweeter than honey to David. But also he remembers all the ways that David saved, that God saved him over the years, right? Same thing. It's like we can worship God as creator. It's nice in this room. You know what would be awesome? If our church service was at the top of a mountain, looking at, looking at like some, some beautiful lake and scenery. Then when we sang the words, like we worship God as creator of all things, it would be a little, a, a little more special, wouldn't it? Matthew, make that happen. For our holiness. And the, but David goes through this hard thing and he thinks back and he knows God. He doesn't just think rightly about who God is. He knows him. And so, when he goes through this difficult time, he's like a, he's like a pinata, right? So he's whacked by life, and what comes out? Praise. Praise is what comes out. Here are a dozen things that I love about God. It's a good test of our faith, then, I think, when, like, when life hits you, what comes out? When you lose someone you love or something you love or when something falls apart or when finances are really stressful, it's like, what comes out? And that's like convicting to think about for me. It reveals sometimes like, do I really just think like the right theology or do I really know God? Because if I know God, it'll change my response to these times when life whacks me. And I would say that there's, this is unique to Christianity. There's a unique transformation of our lives that Christianity offers. When we know God, when we are able to say that his love is better than life, when his love is better than whatever problem we have, it's better than that problem getting fixed or taken care of. This is transformative. This is, there is freedom if you actually would rather have God's love than any problem in your life being taken care of. If you'd rather have his love. Why? Because it's like we're told by Jesus to love the Lord with all of our heart and soul and mind, all of our, all of our being. In other words, we should love God most. Well, when you love God more than X, Y, or Z, that means when X fails you or when Y is lost, or when Z lets you down, you still have the thing that you love most. Imagine this. Imagine that, like, you invite all of your best friends over for a reunion at your house. You're staying, they're staying the weekend at your house. A sweet time. But you wake up in the middle of the night and you, sm you think you smell smoke. And then you look. And there's like a glimmer of light down the hallway and smoke is coming out of it. And within seconds, you're yelling. You're like, there's a fire in the house. There's a fire in the house. And you run out of the house. You're the first one out of the house. 
And you see that the house is not just a little fire in the corner, but it's actually starting to be engulfed in flames. And you're losing all of your stuff, everything that you treasured in that house, everything that you've collected, your journal with the list of things you like about your crush, it's in the house. It's like, how much do you care that the house is burning down? You care, right? You do. It's, it's like a horribly traumatic thing for people when their, when their house burns down. You would care. But in that moment, as the first person in the house, what do you care about more? That all your friends would get out of the house, right? Because what you've done is you've ordered them in your life, and your house is below the safety of the people you love. So that you can go through the loss of your house and you know, you know what, those friends, they're going to come out of the house, they're going to be by me, they're going to help me clean, like walk through the ashes and see what's left over and they're going to offer me a place to stay and they're going to help me get back on my feet and they're going to bring me meals. Order your love and you hope that your friends get out of the house and when they do, you mourn the loss of the house. It's not like, oh well, just a house. You know, no, it's really hard. Pain we go through is really hard even if our loves are ordered correctly. But when we put God first, what happens is that we've put something first that we cannot lose. And so no matter what happens in our life that's really difficult, we still can cling to the thing that we love most, right? And the thing that loves us most, the thing that gives us the deepest joy. We can't lose. It's wise to hold on to something you can't lose rather than to give your life towards something that moth and rust can destroy, that thieves can break in and steal. St. Augustine was one of the first to talk about this, like how our loves need to be ordered correctly. He was an African pastor, um, one of the church fathers, fathers, and, and Augustine would say that our loves must be rightly ordered so that God is first in our life. So David, as he writes, your steadfast love is better than life has is sitting in the wilderness you know and he's able to have his loves in order so that he can still praise god even though life has dealt him a significant blow if you open your bible you see like most versions will say on the top like by the chapter the context that the psalm was written in. Sometimes they'll say who wrote it. We don't always know who wrote each psalm, but for many of them we do, and it'll say sometimes like another note. Uh, a note. This one was like 61. is to the choir master with strings, instruments, and David wrote it, you know. Um, psalm 60 will say like, here's some instructions for the choir master, and this is about David when he strove with Aram Nahariam, and, and when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 at Edom in the valley, it like gives you context, right? Well, what's the context for Psalm 63? It says, Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And David found himself in the wilderness more than once. But all commentators agree that this was, this was written when he was fleeing from his son Absalom, who wanted to overthrow him, see him killed so he could take the throne. And David is actually like in the wilderness paying the penalty for his sins. Remember, David has this messed up family. We often think of David as like a hero of the Bible, but like his story is not always heroic, you know, right? He sees Bathsheba bathing, bathing on the roof. He, he, he wants her. So he has her husband killed so that he could steal her for his own. And what flows out of that is just a whole bunch of consequences. The, the, the son that he, that he has with Bathsheba is, is, he dies, um, as a baby, as an infant. 
And then his other son rapes one of his sisters. And then you got this son, Absalom, who wants to kill him and overthrow him. And this is where David finds himself as he writes these words. It's horrible, you know. He's lost everything. Even his own family is trying to kill him. And he can't really say, like, this is someone else's fault. And yet, his love for God has grown over the years, and he's seen God be his help enough times to be able to sit in the desert and praise him. The last three verses are when you kind of see this, like, freedom, this transformation. The last four verses, I mean, you see this transformation that God offers when we have our hearts rightly ordered. It says, verse 9, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. There shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king, David referring to himself, shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. He can say, you know, these people are coming after me and these horrible things have happened to me and I have peace that God is going to take care of it all. David doesn't know exactly what it's going to look like, you know, for God to take care of it all. Neither do we when things happen. Men and I didn't know that the uh, MRI was going to come back all clear. But there was room there for faith to trust that it was going to be okay. And it, when we say it's going to be okay, it doesn't mean that like the problem is going to be fixed. It means that we still have the thing that matters most. We still have God. We can praise God even, even more than David too. And this is maybe my application for us this morning. We can praise God even more than David because you think of like, okay, David makes this list of all the things that he loves about God. And it's amazing. And he's seen God help him in all these amazing ways. But David has seen God help him less than we have seen God help us. David never saw Jesus walk on water. He never knew that Jesus would raise Lazarus from the dead. He didn't know. He didn't know about Jesus healing the blind or the lepers, setting the prisoners free. He did not know about the cross. He hadn't seen God sent his only son to pay the penalty for our sins. So we get this picture. We get this picture in Psalm 63 of the king going to the wilderness, paying the penalty for his sins, right? Seeking God and hoping that God would deliver him. But we've seen a much better picture that we can remember, that we can let our mind wander to, which is the king who had committed no sins going to the wilderness for us. God's love, his steadfast love is better than life. There's a word, one word in Hebrew that is translated steadfast love. And in other, in other translations, like the NIV just translates it love, and I think that's like not doing it justice. There's one Hebrew word. It's probably the most important Hebrew word in the Bible. And it's hesed, and it means like this faithful Never giving up, never stopping, always and forever love. There's a book for kids that <laughs> describes his love with this all the time. It's like his, his never giving up, always and forever love. This is Hesed. ESV translates it steadfast love or faithful love or another uh, is like unfailing love. What kind of love is better than life? Not any love, not just any love. 
hesed is better than life. The, God's love, it's a love that would send his son so that no one would perish, but those who believed in him would have eternal life. That's love that is better than this life. Love, the, love where a man would lay down his life for his friends. Love that while we were still sinners, Christ would die for us. Love that is patient. Love that is kind. Love that keeps no record of wrongs. Love that perseveres. What is this love that is better than life? It is love that never fails. And it is no more clear than on the cross. Love is on a cross. Steadfast love that's better than life is love that would die for the sinner. The perfect for the unrighteous. So we can praise him. I want to end our, our t- like this sermon time maybe a little differently than we normally do. And we'll still do communion, don't worry. But I just want to give us a moment to pause, a minute or two. And you can do it internally, but if it's helpful for you, you can write it down. I just want you to make a list. Make a list like David made a list. The ways that God has brought you joy and praise him. Like complete your joy by praising him for the ways that he's helped you for the ways that he's provided for you, for the ways that you've seen his grace to you. So I'm going to give us a couple minutes just to meditate on that. Make a list in your mind or on a sheet of paper, and then I'll come back and we'll take communion together. David writes in verse 6, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. One of the things that is just so crucial to our growth as Christians and to us knowing God is just remembering. You know, remembering the ways that he's been good to us. Remembering the ways that he showed up when we needed him to show up. Show up. And even just like experiencing his, his love. And uh, it's not just like theoretical, it's real. And it's so real that we have this thing that Jesus gave us to do regularly. You know, he gives us like a lot of commands on like how to live, but he only gives us a few uh, commands that we should do when we gather together. There's like not that many, the list of things we should do when we gather together as Christians. And one of them is the Lord's table. And the whole purpose of it is to remember what he's done for us. Just like David sits in, in bed and remembers what the Lord has done for us. Because he knows how important it is and how easily we forget. So we're going to have communion now. If it's your first time joining us, we just welcome you, if you're a believer, to join us and in taking the elements um, here and bringing them back to your seat and enjoying them this time of remembrance together. If you're not a believer yet, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, then I just invite you to join us by observing, you know, um, this time where we remember what the Lord has done and we remember the specific goodness of him going to the cross for us. So I invite you now to come up and get the elements and then bring them back to your seat so we can take them together.